Bearing Witness, part of the Racial Reckoning Project, is a reflective dive into the week's events unfolding in this season of racial upheaval and, we hope, change. I'm Anthony Galloway, Executive Director of the Arts Us Center for the African Diaspora. And I'm Georgia Fort, an independent journalist. A little learning, indeed, may be a dangerous thing, but the want of learning is a calamity to any people. Frederick Douglass. This week, as we look at some of the news stories here, the, the organizing of, of the coming trials of the, of the other officers in the case and some of the developments that are coming along with even getting a, a, a lead into the defense that's coming, um, our continued conversations around uh, vaccinations and death tolls as we are on our way and heading towards the million mark. Um, as we continue to deal with the things that are happening in community, both at a local level and a national level, and of course, in our space, we continue uh, to see the the challenges with missing and murdered Indigenous women and misinformation. All of these things are absolutely in front of us as we try to parse through our daily lives in this space. So I'm really excited to check in with you th- this week, Georgia, because we could start many different places. So let's start with our independent journalist who's got a pulse on the ground. What are some of the things that you're covering this week? Well, Anthony, this week I have been looking a lot to uh, the Charter Amendment. There has been a lot of back and forth with whether or not it's going to be on the ballot, if it is on the ballot, what is it going to say on the ballot? Um, And it's caused a lot of controversy. People, um, you know, feel very strongly about this issue. The other side of that is the gun violence that's been happening in our community and how that intersects, how public safety continues to be the number one issue for residents in the Twin Cities area. There was a large meeting that was held at Shiloh uh, that just basically detailed the progress of 21 Days of Peace. You had faith leaders uh, who have been dedicating their time to community outreach, getting out here in the community, building relationships. And um, we got a report that that effort led to more than a dozen arrests and getting more than a dozen guns off the streets. So we're seeing um, these different approaches to public safety, but at the same time, 11 people were injured in seven different shootings last weekend. The quadruple homicide that shook our community to the core, even though that there were suspects named People continue to just ask, why would somebody do that? And so uh, those are the the stories that I have been following. Those are the conversations that I've been having with people in our community over the last few weeks is about uh, the the change that's so desperately needed for all of us. You know, it, it, it's interesting. They, they, they had... Um, in our church service on Sunday, they had um, a report. They shared some of the findings of the report for the 21 Days of Peace. Many, many of our, our community members were participating in that. Um, and some of the conversations that they were having, there was this interesting connection between um, the officers who would show up and the folks who were out there on, you know, on, on the street having these conversations. Um, they also brought forward this interruption, right? That the encounter of folks in community, that there were things that they were able to take care of without 
um, police and the feeling that it that it gave to be able to not have things escalate to that place where many of the participants were saying they would be unsure of the outcome because of the concerns around public safety that are even here. And so um, that was an interesting piece. And so to hear you talk about that in the in the meeting they had to, to debrief that, I'm also um, I'm, I'm I'm also it's not lost on me that that the interruption that was happening that may have produced results also was interrupting encounters <laughs> that could have been happened with law enforcement first in the stage of weariness about in those in- encounters. Um, what where did they did they say anything about where that initiative is headed is it going to continue i i do believe they're trying to make it a national model so they want to use the 21 days of peace uh program that has been enacted here and use that as a, a pilot for a national program because of its effectiveness mm. so so and and I think that this is this isn't the first time that something like this has been done, right? I know um the the model of taking a particular area and having community just be out and about in that com- in that area has has had positive effects in the past. I mean, I want to really call out the fact uh, that women have been have been doing this model in community for years. In particular, black women have been doing this model in community for years. And so um I, I, I noticed a gender difference. And the folks who are around the table, at least at those who are gathering on, on our circles, what was the makeup of the folks who are participating in this in this initiative? From my understanding, it's been actually a, a, a mixture of men and women okay. um, and a mixture of city, state and community leaders. So people from all different um, walks of life, mm. different professions uh, intergenerational effort, and so it, it's it's almost like an an all hands on deck approach. The the other thing, Anthony, I'm going to pivot here a little bit. Uh, the other thing that has been on my radar has been the homeless encampments in Minneapolis each year around this time. As you know, we're approaching fall. We're in the first few mm-hmm. weeks of fall now. Summer is officially ended. We by this point in the last, I want to say seven to 10 years, by this point every year, there's a few homeless encampments throughout the Twin Cities that have started to develop. And every single year we go through this period of once it starts to get colder and then we get the first snow and below zero temperature, then there's this eviction or closure that happens with the homeless encampments. And so I'm starting to notice uh, specifically there's one on Cedar Mm -hmm. and Franklin uh, that I have been following. There's also one near North that has been there for quite some time. But the anticipation of the closures um, has made me, you know, turn my lens towards these encampments but I, I just feel like we're stuck in this cycle um, where every year we kind of put a Band-Aid on it by closing these encampments without actually solving the problem that is causing the en- encampments to exist in the first place. And and so, yeah, I've just I've been thinking about that cycle of how we always get to this place each year in the Twin Cities when the weather starts to change and we start thinking about 
our neighbors who are are living in tents right now? And where are they going to go when it when it gets cold? And so I also hope this year there can be some solution, some permanent solutions put in place so that we don't end up in this situation again next fall or next winter. And it, it, it's funny. Uh, it's it's so it's not so funny that you bring that up, but it's it's. I was just in conversation with some charity leads who do work. Um, around providing spaces for homeless folks, and and this they can count on this cycle of of burnout, and, and, and you know it's it's this season, and and trying to find beds and figure out where to, where to, where to, where to put folks, and again to your point, not addressing root cause issues that could prevent us from having being here in the first place, and it's not that we are lacking resources. This has been one of the biggest frustrations for me, is that. We may lack resources in our current system structure, but we're not lacking resources to address problems. Right. And this right. has been true for our conversations. I know we've talked at length about this in terms of our policing and in terms of our, our correction system, in terms of all of these different places. You know, we've got the resources to tackle that we don't seem to have the will to, to do the long-term um, work, the, the long-term solutions that address those root cause pieces. And so again, I'm in a space of, of a little bit of nihilism um, as, you, as you bring this forward. I'm sorry, I saw you were about to, to, to jump yeah, in. Yeah, well, and somebody had pointed out to me the, the nonprofit industrial complex that is plaguing Minnesota, how many nonprofits have been created to tackle homelessness that have more than a million-dollar budget or have very beautiful, nice, expanded new spaces that cannot exist once homelessness is solved. <laughs> I just leave that there. Oh, go there, Mr. Okay, this is a perfect time because our guest is one who is known for being able to get us into a space of critical consciousness, nuance, and thought. So I can't wait to bring in um, our guest now. I'll pause right there and just allow us to say, all right. Well, our guest today for many in our community needs no introduction, but we're going to have her come and introduce herself and, and get in <laughs> on this I'm juicy itching, nugget I'm that Miss Georgia just laid at our feet. So, Miss Catrice Jackson is joining us here. Um, um, and I don't even know how to describe you, consultant, community thinker, healer, pusher. I'll let you do the introduction. You know, I guess I'm a little bit of all, all of that, but most importantly, very passionate about issues surrounding social injustice and racial injustice. So, you know, I would say, you know, speaker, author, healer, definitely freedom fighter. And so I'm glad to be here. So you heard me and Miss Georgia talking just, yes, absolutely. Not, 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 you heard me and Georgia going in and I had to bring you in at this moment because she asked, she, she just dropped a jewel here for us. And so as you've been hearing us talk back and forth, what are some of the things that are coming up for you? You know, it's, it's uh, interesting what Georgia was talking about. I definitely agree with that. And uh, she's right. You know, this nonprofit industrial complex is it's a problem. And she's absolutely right again, as she says, when these problems get solved, then there's no need for these organizations or these companies. And so I, I was jotting down a couple of things as she was talking as what I thought and, and believe to be some of the root causes of some of the things that you all have been talking about in the show already. 
And one was, you know, mental health issues for sure. Um, and but the biggest thing were, were two things, and that was systemic oppression and racism are at the crux of these problems and issues that you've been talking about so far, as well as one of the things that I teach about when I work with white folks is white apathy. There's just this collective, national, global sense of we don't care. And especially as it relates to, you know, what's happening to black folks in the Twin Cities and across the country. You know, that that part about we don't care, this this comes up quite a bit because we have this this tradition in Minnesota in particular, but in the Midwest of taking a statement like that and 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 going and clutching the pearls, mm-hmm. clutching the heart, clutching and going, I I absolutely do care. Instead of thinking about the the expansive piece of that, that it, even if I have the the conscious intent, right, or 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 or, or positive intent, right, uh, uh, intention in that in that space. If I fail to do the things that interrupt, that I have control and power over, that is a demonstration of not caring. Um, and, and, and sometimes that gets removed from this discourse, from, from, from the understanding of what that means. Absolutely. One of the things that I talk about and teach as well is failure to act is failure to care. So, mm. you know, I really don't care what people say. I, I watch what they do. And as it relates mm. to white apathy, this uh, this sense of just not really caring about what's happening specifically to black and brown bodies across the country, uh, you know, is one of the worst pandemics that we face. Because just imagine what could happen if the collective white body of people would stand up, rise up, protest, march, take to the streets and use all their resources, time, money and energy to intervene and stand in the gap as it relates to some of the mm. racial injustices happening to people, what kind of change we could immediately see. And that's not the case. That's not happening. White folks are sitting around intellectualizing these problems. They are uh, staying protected in their white spaces behind the white picket fence. They're throwing, you know, some charity style type of money here and there, but they're not really actually internalizing what's happening and and taking action from the heart. It's all from a, a intellectual space, which, you know, if 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 people aren't acting, specifically white folks, then, you know, there's nothing left for me to conclude other than that they don't care. Because I know if something's happening to people that I care about, if something, if, if one of my family members was homeless, if one of one of my family members or someone that I love dearly was gunned down in the streets, there would be no time to stop and read a book or, you know, get out this article or see what the 10 point checklist is. Immediately, I would move into action. I, I probably would make some mistakes moving fast, but I would be moving. I would be doing something. I would be you know, taking risk and making sacrifices to to intervene and do something. And we just we just don't see enough people in general doing that. But specifically, we don't see the collective white body doing that. Catrice, one of the things that really inspires me about your body of work is just how dynamic it is. On, on one side of what you do, you're uplifting, amplifying 
and centering black women with your your annual conference that you do, Follow Black Women, which is coming up, by the way, and I'm excited to participate in. Uh, But on the other side of your work, you're naming white apathy and you have done a ton of work uh, in trying to move white people from a place of apathy to a place of empathy. Can you expound on what inspired you to kind of work on both sides of the community and trying to bring us uh, to a, a deeper sense of togetherness and, and ultimately create a more equitable society? Absolutely. Um, well, I don't know that I chose this work. <laughs> uh, I think this work chose me specifically related to uh, the work with white folks, which is very exhausting and challenging and frustrating, quite frankly. Uh, one of the things that I talk about when I'm teaching them to help them understand where they sit when I talk about white apathy is that they sit in what I call the fishbowl. And in that fishbowl are three elements that they swim in on a constant daily basis. And that is apathy, anti-Blackness, and white terrorism. And if they're swimming in that kind of water every day of their life because they walk in a white body, and we combine that together and we examine it, then there's no wonder that they respond or don't respond to the collective issues of black and brown people in this country. They're anti-black, they're apathetic, and they think that they are supreme white beings. So, who, you know, if, if I was swimming in that water and consuming it and digesting it, I would behave a certain way too. And so, you know, part of the, uh, part of the education is helping them understand what that means, what it looks like, how it manifests, and how it shows up and how they choose to engage or not engage in black and brown communities, which is what I call weapons of whiteness, whether they choose to use them or not. And so they learn about these, oh, I'm on about 50 now. I started off with about 45, but there's about 50 weapons of whiteness that white folks use to cause harm to black and brown folks, specifically black folks. And so, you know, that work of confronting that and helping them unlearn that and then learn something new uh, is a a tremendous load of work to do. Um, Some people say, Catrice, how do you do it? Why do you do it? I just feel like that's what I'm here to do. And, and, you know, so I do that. And there is some fruit, (laughs) you know, it's a rare fruit, but there there is some fruit to the labor. There are some uh, women white women specifically who get it, who understand it, who are championing the cause, who are showing up differently, who are learning how to nourish black women specifically and are now, you know, stepping into a position of of somewhat leading the way to help other white folks get on this anti-racist journey. So, you know, that's that piece. And I'm a believer that we are not going to eradicate the beast of white terrorism without the help of white folks. And so they got to know what they don't know and they got to know what to do. You know, in, in an, in an article in the bazaar, you, you, there's a quote that just, (laughs) that got me all up, all up in my, in my existential space, right? (laughs) You said that, you know, becoming anti-racist is a marathon. Don't expect to be coddled. In fact, 
expect to be unnerved. And this this is something that that has has come up even in our conversations around, you know, people saying what's the right way to protest or what the right way to respond to these acts of violence to to our experiences in community. And I love that that shift, right? Expect to be unnerved. Even this impulse to expect to be able to understand and wrap your heads around this without any push without any 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 work is in and of itself problematic and it's something that we keep encountering how 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 are you engaging that particular um uh, nuance especially in this in this space that we live in in the midwest with this with this um uh, 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 with a liberal mindset that says this is the these i've used the right words i've done all these things and 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 I don't have to be accountable to the unconscious parts of those spaces. Like there's, you know, I don't have a really good way to say this question, but I've been, I've been struggling a way to address and explain this and engage this to folks. How are you encountering that? Yeah, uh, I would agree with that. There seems to be this uh, consistent ongoing expectation, specifically from white folks, where they believe that they should be handled with care. They believe that they should be coddled and comforted and, um, you know, that we should hold their hand and walk them nicely through this journey. And I, I, I'm just not with it. <laughs> um, that I'm just not going to do it. We've been doing that. We, we've been doing that. You know, Dr. King did that. Folks before Dr. King did that and folks after him. And, and here we are. You know, we haven't solved the problems. Nothing has dramatically changed. And so we, we can no longer use that as a strategy to get white folks on their journey of, you know, anti-racism or becoming allies or accomplices for the movement for black lives. And so I just tell them up front, uh, they, they need, at least, in, at least in my spaces, when I'm doing the teaching and education, that they need to know up front, this is not going to feel good. You may want to get up and walk out. You may cry. You may run. You may go to break after this workshop is over and not come back because it is going to be unnerving. I'm going to tap into spaces and places that have never been tapped into. And, you know, one of the things that happens in in the workshops that I do when I'm educating white women specifically is that they have to come in with some humility. And I think that that is something that's not really talked about when white folks are humble to know that they don't know everything, that they don't have the answers, and that they are really ready and prepared to learn. They have to come in with some humility because humility opens the door for them to receive something that they had not received before. And so when I talk about that in my workshops, I need them to come in humble to bring in that humility so that I can then penetrate their spirit their heart for the first time. Because if you think about them reading books and going to workshops and reading articles and watching the news, that's all That's all intellectual practice. It's not a heart-centered practice. Um, so it is hard work. And um, I think that white folks just need to be prepared that if they really want to make that change and transformation and to really be helpful and useful and effective in eradicating, you know, um, white terrorism. As, as you can notice, I don't call it white supremacy. Uh, there's nothing supreme about the history of what white folks have done in this country and what they continue to do. It's terroristic. And so people who want to get on that journey, 
they got to come with some humility and they have to expect to be uncomfortable because what black and brown folks are experiencing right now, there's nothing comfortable about that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that you acknowledge that in such a, a delicate and, and thoughtful way, because on one side, you're investing so much time in educating white people. And then on the other side, you are creating space to help black people heal from all that pain and that trauma that's been caused. And one of those ways is through your love bomb box. What inspired you to create that box? And I know that you're very intentional about what you put in that box. Uh, but yeah, could you just share with our audience what inspired you to create the love bomb box? Well, first of all, it was my complete joy and pleasure to do it. Like I spent three or four months uh, testing out my scientific skills, which I think it turned out okay, but I am definitely not a scientist. <laughs> and, and and soon realized as I was making the lotions and the body scrubs and all those wonderful things that went into that love box that, that it was very much scientific. So it took me a minute to get my recipes and my formulas together. But I wanted to create something. It The love bomb box was a extension of one of the first books in my Catriceology trilogy, Black Couch Conversation. So there's going to be three mini books. And the first one was Let's Talk About Black Love. And so I wanted a way to show uh, love to Black women specifically and to create something that they could use to love on themselves on a daily basis. And so I took my time with it. I wasn't trying to rush and get it out or compete with you know, whoever else has put out a box. I really put lots of love and care. Well, let me just say I got a box, which I love. And I've been loving on myself with everything that you put in it. And and I posted online uh, when I first received it, my middle daughter, she was so in awe by the gold box that it came in. And she didn't let me open it. She... She was like, this is my box. This is for me. And so she opened it. And then my oldest daughter fell in love with like the body butter. And so needless, needless to say, I think I only got to use like half of the stuff in there because my, my oldest daughter hijacked me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I am so glad that you loved it. I'm, I'm glad to have given you a box. And so, you know, as, as per the next book, let's talk about Black Peace. Uh, mm. There'll be a peace box coming out, a B-piece box. And that, again, will be specifically curated for Black women to, to rest and relax and to find their peace. This is dope. I, I have to apologize. I'm not sure what happened, but I got kicked out and came back in and I was like leaning into my mic and like my beer was scratching on stuff. So <laughs> I really, <laughs> I don't know what just happened, but I missed something good. Yeah, just all the you way. Fired. I think it, I think I was it, I, I was just gushing over Catrice's love bomb box and <laughs> okay. and then also like admitting that my daughter's kind of like hijacked me for half of the stuff in it. So 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 it's funny that you're saying that because um, you know in my recording I also have um, it plays upstairs because my kids we I mean, figured out a way for my kids to be able to listen because they like 
to hear the conversation that's oh, going. Oh, sweet. Nice. And so, and my daughter, as soon as she started talking about the love bomb box, apparently she Googled it because she, all of a sudden I look over and her head's peeking around the corner like, so... Are you going to so, give me so, one, so, Dad? Yes, I'm, I'm on the website right now, baby girl. Um, th- there's something that I absolutely love about not just... I think there's something that gets missed in here because, again, in our... In our current zeitgeist, whenever we challenge um, white body supremacy, white terrorism, and all those things, there, there, there seems to be this need to turn it around to about who somebody is and, and, and the form or fashion in which the conversation happens and a complete neglect or disregard of the love and the care that it takes to even raise that question or issue. People who who are disengaged or or or, or antith- antithetic to 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 you aren't going to participate in helping you grow, and and I think you know this is something that gets missed often. You know, I could I could hear all the things that you have been saying so far, and I could absolutely see somebody going and taking it. Well, see, they they're just causing more division and stuff like that. And my first thing in my mind is they're at the table. <laughs> They're at the table trying to create a space for you to do some growth. And that gets dismissed too often. And so when I hear you, when, when I hear the 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 origin of the love bomb box and how and the care piece that it takes with that, that nod, part of me wants to say, you know, uh, why should I invest time? Right. And I, and I know that I, I, I get the bigger picture in here, but I, I get to moments where I'm like, why am I investing so much time? in folks who don't want to change their terrorism of myself. And, 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 and why don't I just direct all of that energy and time to uplifting me and my folks and my peoples and stuff like that. And there's this, there's, I, I, there's this tension between it. Because if I turn my eye away from the terrorism, of course, I, I, that's going to be a problem for me too because it's not going to go away and it's still going to be at my throat. So, so I'm curious how you navigate that or, 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 or what is your thinking around that, I guess, is the question. Well, I think what you said makes perfect sense because there's times when it's so much tension that I think, screw this, I'm out of here, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Where I think, is this really, uh, is this really important? Is this really how I should be giving of my life source? And, you know, I've toggled between that space quite a bit of uh, times over the last five years. And what I've come to realize is that there is a lot of truth in that. And so I will be making some shifts and doing Mm. some things different going into 2022, where there will be much more attention and energy given to my folks, my people, my struggle. And not because I don't think that that the other part of the work that I do has, doesn't have value. Uh, I don't want that to be my legacy. It's really just that simple. Like, you know, when I take my last breath on this earth, I don't want it to be that I gave 75% of my time to white folks who oftentimes didn't appreciate what they were mm. getting versus that I gave most of my life towards the movement for black lives, black liberation and my folks. And so, you know, white folks will still have the opportunity to read books and 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 take classes and and, you know, participate in webinars and things like that. They can still learn, um, but they just won't get as much of my energy. So, you know, that makes sense. And um, but I, I, I wouldn't say that it makes so much sense that I would completely walk away from trying to 
cultivate as many allies and accomplices as I can, because I know that we cannot do this without the collective white body having some kind of buy-in. And in order for them to buy in, they have to understand why they need to buy in. That's pretty sad, but it's true. They got to understand why they need to buy in. And then they have to be led by someone who's a part of the movement. Because if you put white folks in a room trying to solve problems for black and brown people, we already know what happens. They cannot do it without us. So we need them. They need us. And so I have to keep my hand in that pot. I love that. The history mind in me is just is just reeling because as you say that the first thing that's coming to my mind are all of the historical examples that we do not get growing up. Of 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 white body accomplices, <laughs> uh, you know, in in this space, and so we're hurting for those examples because we haven't taught them. You know that iconic picture of Rosa Parks where she's sitting in the front of the bus, taken a year afterwards for the marketing campaign that went out around it. Uh, we never talk about the guy behind her, Nicholas Chris, a journalist who's like, I'll be the face of white racism for that, you know, for that picture. Or the, you know, the NAACP has always been a multiracial society, but we don't get any of those stories. Or the people who put their lives on the line, you know, in a real way, we don't get their stories. In some ways, they get written out of history because, and and this is this is this is my, you know, this is where where my head goes with it. If we were to tell those stories, we'd be giving an example of what it means and how to be an ally. And that would that would cause the kind of disruption that white body terrorism supremacy can't afford. <laughs> and so I think uh, there's a really interesting nugget in, 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 in what you're giving here. You know, one of the wonderings that I have for you, right? So, so you're in a space of pushing, right? I love that quote about, you know, you got to be unnerved, right? The muscle don't grow if it don't get some strain or some pressure on it, right? Mm -hmm. All right. So, so you're in this space consistently. You're navigating self-care. You're navigating care for your community. You're navigating care for, for folks who are willing to and have the will to want to move and change and things like that. Um, in all of those spaces, what have you seen as the as like your best examples of when you've seen it work, when you've seen it click? What does that look like, feel like, sound like? Ooh, well. <laughs> Sorry, you got me on one. Y'all, y'all, y'all <laughs> so got me in a, in a space today. One, right? <laughs> um, <clears throat> um, I hear it more than I see it. And that's because the women who participate in the workshops that I do that helps them get on this journey to allyship have been all across the country hosting these workshops. And so I don't always get to see the fruit of whatever it is they're doing in their communities after they've gone through this transformation or they begin this transformation. However, I have a strong, committed group of white women in the Twin Cities who show up and they show up for the Black women in the Twin Cities, big time. And I am able to hear from, you know, uh, leaders such as, you know, Nakima Levy Armstrong, uh, Kimberly Handy Jones, who oft oftentimes shows up and supports the community, Chantel Allen, Satara Strong, some of the other, uh, Maria Perry. They are able to then come back to me and say, dang, Catrice. You know, so-and-so showed up and they did this and they brought, 
you know, a hundred people with them and they, or they contributed X amount of dollars to this, or they, now they are a marshal at, at the protest. And so I'm able to hear what white women who've gone through my workshops do and how they show up. I'm also able to hear how they used to show up prior to engaging with Catrice in her workshops and how they now show up. Uh, so I don't always get to see the, the transformation or see the fruits of the labor, uh, but it brings me great joy to know that the women who go through the workshops and not only just go through the workshops, because many of them come for the weekend workshop and, and don't continue the work, but those who continue the work after it's over, that there are quite a few of them right there in the Twin Cities who uh, are consistently showing up and doing the work. And the work, when I say the work, it's not coming to a protest. It's not holding a sign. It's not that, you know, easy stuff to do. Like, it's easy to just pick up a sign and come to a protest. But it's harder to make Black women feel safe and heard and respected and nourished because that takes that heart-centered work, as I talked about earlier. So you got to be a different kind of person to show up and not demonstrate white woman violence, which is what they do. And so they learn how to lay down the weapons of whiteness, to put them at bay, to use them less often, to be less oppressive, to be less racist. And so they can show up and be a certain way, which causes less harm to the black women that I love and care about. And when I hear that they are causing less harm, then I know the work is paying off. Catrice, you also helped raise money for Black women to buy homes, correct? Absolutely, yes. Um, Can you talk about that work? I was totally blown away when I I first saw that aspect of your work uh, to think that you could put together a GoFundMe for a Black woman and her family and within a few days sometimes you have gotten a home totally funded. Totally <laughs> funded just by... I, I, I mean, and I don't know all of what goes on behind the scenes, but uh, when I saw that online, I just was in awe. I mean, it is absolutely incredible uh, that you identify Black women who have been in the Twin Cities who have been working so hard. And when you also parallel that to the fact that we are one of the richest states, but have yet the lowest percentage of home ownership among Black people, like we have 17%, only 17% of Black residents in Minnesota own a home. And to think that you are, are tackling that statistic almost by yourself without any big bank, behind you without any huge corporate sponsor. You're identifying hardworking Black women in this community and amplifying their story and securing housing for them and and helping them establish wealth for the the next generation. Yeah. Um, You know, I guess that that could go back and uh, provide some more insight into, you know, what are the f- fruits of the labor and, and how does, you know, it manifest. Um, 
there are, you know, several white women specifically across the country who believe in paying reparations. And they only believe in paying reparations because of, you know, being on this journey of, of being anti-racist and being, a, being an accomplice. And so because of that, they are willing to lead and champion and rally you know, funds and support for these campaigns that we're doing. It's called Catriceology Homes for Black Women. So we are on our third home. Our for- first home went to a black woman and her daughter in Milwaukee. The second home went to a black woman and her family in here in Omaha, where I'm at. And they actually close on that house on September 30th. So I'll, I'll actually be able to physically be there and and watch them sign the papers and participate in that. And we're already geared up for October 1st for the next woman who will hopefully own a home debt free. And she lives in the Twin Cities. So um, I'm excited about that one because, like I said, I have a you know, I, the Twin Cities feels like a second home to me. I get people who say, Catrice, you should just get in an apartment here. And I'm like, yeah, I probably <laughs> should, but <laughs> not not just yet. <laughs> I know what those winners are like up there. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it brings me great joy to be able to do that. And quickly, I'll tell you why. Because a woman approached me in 2018, a Korean woman. And she said, Catrice, I would love to do a reparations campaign for you. And I was like, okay. And she was like, you know, you're you're just going to be recovering from this surgery and you need need to be on one level. And I think you need a new house. And I'm like, okay, yeah, of course, let's do it. Long story short, she raised uh, over $100,000 and then a quote unquote angel donor, which happened to be a white woman, uh, put up $100,000. Wow. Literally transferred it into my bank account and said, go buy, go buy a house. And mm. I did. Mm. And so part of this for me is paying it forward. And um, I'm, I'm really big on economic justice. And so this is a great way to help black women and black families create generational wealth. I wish we had like the sound effect of like the applause. Yo, just like amen. everybody just, 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 <laughs> just, can we get an audio producer to like throw the you know audience applause for Catrice raising money for black women to buy homes and creating establishing generational wealth? I just think it's incredible. Producer Holly Lee here. I got you. Thank you. I enjoy it. You, I'm sorry. The, the, the tears is flowing over here. You're just gonna have to. I'm gonna have to take a moment because that that um that demonstration is not what we are commonly seeing right now, and it's and it's a problem. And so there's just there's the the joy that's kind of bubbling over right now. Seeing that demonstration is just getting to me, and so I appreciate it. Thank you for that. Um, you know, and, and the fact that I get to show this episode to my daughter and say, look here. It's real. It's here. It's it's right in front of your face. I'm I'm excited about. It. She just came came down, um, and it's part of what's got me in the fields and kind of looked around the corner, and her eyes were huge uh, um, as you told that. It, it, this is usually the time mm. where we would pivot <laughs> to checking in on you and how you're doing in this moment and how you're being you in this moment. But um, I, I got to ask for for anybody who's listening how. How do we join on and support this beautiful work? 
where do we go? How can we let, get get into that space so that 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 we can help make this happen? Well, first of all, thank you for that. And you know, it got me a little teary-eyed over here too when you said your your daughter came around the corner with her eyes bright and big. And you know, that's what this is all about. I um I have one son and he has three children and I have my first granddaughter who's just a little bit over a year old and mm. Man, I hope I can be around for a long time to pour into her so that she will carry the torch and that all of my grandchildren will, um, you know, pick up this work and do this work in their own way. And, 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 and that's just really the way that I see it, that there's something for everybody to do, right? Um, everybody can't raise, a, you know, $200,000 for a house. That may not be their gift or their calling. Everybody can't you know, write a book or create a love box or host a workshop. But I believe that we can all do something. And one of the things that I talk uh, about is really uh, challenging people and and, and going forward uh, into the, the new year. I hope to be able to actually tap into this a little bit more, but challenging us as Black folks specifically to use the gifts that we have. Like we're we're all gifted in some kind of way. And what can we what can we do with our gifts that can give back to our communities, that can show love to our communities, and that we can use them to just pour into the community? So, you know, it sounds, you know, like my, my, my mom and my grandma would say, it sounds like this new fandangle thing, but it's really not, you know, it's, it's just good old grassroots organizing and loving on people and using our gifts to, you know, pour into people and, and, and bring them as much joy and hope as we can. And that's really all I'm doing. Um, it's just using every gift that I have. I have the gift of, of voice. Uh, when I think about my greatest gift, it's my voice, whether it's in song or podcasting or writing a book. And so I use it. I mean, I use it till I can't use it anymore. Right in all the ways that I can to inspire and uplift people. And I believe that I was called to do this work because as I watch some of the things that transpire as a result of doing the work, I don't even know how it happens. Like, you know, what causes a, a woman to just say, what's your banking information? I'm going to, you know, why are you a hundred thousand dollars? But she had been a previous uh, participant in one of those weekend workshops that I do. And so I was able to get to that heart and that spirit that I talked about. And it spoke to her in a way that no one else had ever spoken to her. So, you know, how am I caring for myself? Trust me, I do that. (laughs) I take very good care of me uh, because I know the work that I'm doing is exhausting and tiring and that I'm in the lion's den every time. I confront white terrorism, but I believe that my creator has me and uh, that that I'm safe and protected. And I'm real good about setting boundaries to keep, you know, my spirit intact. And so I have a loving family that, you know, they, my husband, my son, my grandchildren, my daughter-in-law, my mom, they all support what I do. They love on me. I got great friends that love on me. So I'm taken care of, which helps me to be able to continue to do the work. Ashe, Miss Georgia, how are you being you in this moment? 
I am being me by uh, also taking some time to self-care, you know, as as work starts to pick up. I always um, struggle with that, trying to find that balance between working and doing the work, but then also taking care of yourself. So I am uh, working on setting those boundaries as well. And uh, it, it was really nice this week to go out um, Anthony, actually, I saw your sister-in-law at the Fearless Commerce um, event that was held to acknowledge Black-owned businesses, female-owned businesses. And so to be a recipient of that acknowledgement, it definitely, it filled my my spirit, you know, and I made a commitment as I uh, was on stage with 25 other uh, black female business owners to connect with them in the upcoming months and support their businesses because we're all out here um, trying to pursue our dreams, trying to make our community better, trying to figure out how to make our businesses sustainable. And the the key to that sustainability is simply us supporting each other. Y'all just got me all up in my goodness gracious. All right, God <laughs> use me. Um, so, you know, in this moment, I'm 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 diving into the um, the real nuanced interactions, like from the from the simple walking to watching two folks on the street walk towards each other and seeing what acknowledgement, if any at all, they give to each other, and thinking about that and how I interact in those spaces. I'm finding myself diving into those. Those 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 spaces and just trying to chew on on that. That's the, the philosopher in me that coming out right. Um, and as I do it, I am um, I am getting more and more into a space of looking at where I am in the way. There's there's times that we're supporting. There's times where we've got stuff to do, but there are times where I am in the way. And and the hubris that can come without with 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 not thinking about the ways in which that happens, the ways in which I push into kids who are are about to arrive at a really important piece of learning, and I interject myself instead of letting them be in the in the space to arrive at that wisdom, right? And just to let it let it unfold, right? I could take an extra breath and let a little bit more space happen. Uh, um, and so, how I'm being me right now is really doing some some self examination about the ways in which I'm in the way of the women around me, the way I'm in the way of the children and the beautiful brilliance around, the ways in which um, I have an opportunity to insert my voice, but there's also an opportunity to make sure another voice gets to go and be in that space. And so um, I'm, I'm being me right now by doing some of that real, real self-examination because um, there's, there's a lot of noise. <laughs> and am I adding to the noise? Or am I amplifying the voices that need to be heard? And so that's this is space that I've been kicked in, and and, and part of it's your fault, Miss Georgia, because of your exhibit. Um, but are you gonna you know, blame me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Every opportunity I could get. Um, <laughs> um, but as I do that, as I do that, I'm starting to notice that I get stories like mm. like the one that I was able to hear here, <laughs> the one that I'm a Go talk to my daughter with yeah. where she's she's chopping at the bit to rehearse her clarinet, but I'm on this radio show. Um, I, I get to go and, and listen and, and get these stories and it happens when I stop and I go, how do I not insert my voice and listen for a little bit? And so that's kind of how I'm being me in this moment. That is so powerful. I, I feel like I if we it. had if we had the round of applause, I, I would give it again yes. <laughs> right now because... 
seldom in my life. And I mean, I'm not that old, but I'm not young neither. You know, I, I can count on one hand how many times I've heard men talk about creating space specifically for black women. And it is, it's something that I think it, it requires a lot of, of wisdom. Uh, but the, the other person who I, I heard say that was Ernest Comer with the African-American mm. Leadership Forum. And yes. we, we had this cohort, the Josie Johnson you know, fellowship I was in. And maybe in like the third or fourth week, he stopped our meeting maybe 10 minutes in. And he's like, brothers, brothers, listen. Listen, we're not going to do this, this cohort. It happens every cohort. I'm just going to stop it. Because all of the men were talking and talking and the ladies, you know, not wanting to be rude or too loud or like whatever it is, whatever the dynamic is naturally, there was just not a lot of space for the women to to speak on anything. And so he called that out and he asked for the men in the room to be mindful of their own privilege. And so, I mean, even in hearing Catrice talk about, you know, white supremacy and and what that does, we also have to acknowledge how that, uh, how dominant culture has played a role in black spaces too and and creating different senses of hierarchy and privilege and all of these different things. And so I just want to... express like deep gratitude for you not only doing that self-examination but then uh, being vulnerable enough to put that out there and hopefully inspire uh, some other men to do that examination as well and and we need you you know not to like minimize our black men in any way because we need you guys and we need you to lead too but we will miss out on so many great things if we don't also because both things need to be true, if we don't also create those spaces for our amazing, dynamic, and innovative Black women to lead as well. Dr. Jackson, a point you made earlier, um, you know, reminds me, you know, I, I remember uh, hearing about Ernest saying that. Um, but he also went on to say, outside of that space, um, we need to be able to have that same mindset when no one else is listening, yeah. when no one else will ever know, will ever would ever be able to recognize that you withheld your voice in a place where you had your male privilege in order to um, in order to make sure um, and support and take care, and not to take care of in the sense that they can't care for themselves, but in order to be in a position of care for, for others' voices. That, that, that is a, that, that's huge in the personal journey. We, we, we could go on <laughs> for 15 more segments. So I have to just say this right now, Dr. Dr. Jackson, you got to come back. Yes. You yes. got to come back. I would love to. <laughs> I have enjoyed this so much. You heard Likewise. it. We have it on we have it on audio so ain't nothing <laughs> you can say about it now. All right. Um if you want to know how to con- c- contribute to the wonderful work and see what's happening, one of the things I invite you to do is to go to uh, catriceology.com. Um uh, that's C A T R I C E O L O G Y and see some of the amazing work and the books and the offerings that are happening there. Um, but Dr. Jackson, are there other places that you might direct folks that want to support the wonderful work that you're doing that are hap- that's happening around? Absolutely. Thank you for mentioning that and for the opportunity to share. I also do a podcast called Black Couch Conversations, and you can find that at blackcouchconversations.com. Also, Georgia kind of mentioned that I will be in the Twin Cities on October 10th hosting the 
third annual Follow Black Women Conference, where Miss Georgia will be one of our featured speakers. I'm looking forward to seeing her again. Uh, along with Nakima Levy Armstrong, Maria Perry, and uh, Zakaya Jabbar. And uh, the theme of that conference is really about um, how do we move the movement for Black lives forward through healing and self-care. So a lot of the things that we were talking about today really will be coming up uh, at that conference. So you can also join us if you like, and registration is open at catriceology.com. And I have lots of books on Amazon. So if you want to just check me out on there, I have an author page. Um, And so, you know, I'm all over the place. But if you Google Catriceology, you'll find lots of ways to connect. But thanks for that opportunity. And for the brothers out there, there is a place on there to donate a seat to a black woman. So I'm going to call all the brothers right now. I'm going to go on down that line and get my donation for a seat at that conference myself. But I'm calling everybody to come in and be able to take advantage. Press that button and make it happen. Amen. Well, Dr. Jackson, thank you so much for for knowledge dropping as as in the in the words of one of my uh aunties and community Lisa Jones you put some fat on my head um, tonight uh, <laughs> and I want to thank you thank you so much for that we always end in the words of one of our our, our, our favorite community healers and so I'm going to kick it to Miss Georgia to close us out in the words of Dr. Joy Lewis may the revolution be healing this is Bearing Witness this has been Bearing Witness with Anthony and Georgia a part of the Racial Reckoning Project, The Arc of Justice, a journalism project created and supported by Ampers, Diverse Radio for Minnesota's Communities, KMOJ Radio, and the Minnesota Humanities Center with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. <laughs>